You are listening to Word Up, a place where we share our stories because who we are matters. Today we move our conversation to Timmins High and Vocational Institute, where teacher Brady Power and his grade 11 student Abigail Anderson helped me to interview the award-winning and inspirational author Jesse Thistle. You may be wondering about the format of this podcast and why I'm choosing to work with staff and students in different schools across the board. With all of the barriers and challenges that this pandemic has thrown at us, our mission statement has become even more meaningful. Together, we inspire innovation and a passion for learning. So together with educators from Tomogamy all the way to Hearst, we aim to elevate student voice, to connect with leaders and knowledge holders, and to inspire innovation and passion as we move forward. So once again, thank you for meeting me here, and I know you're going to enjoy part one of our conversation with Jesse. So I'd like to thank all of you for being here and joining me in conversation this morning. I'm really looking forward to seeing where the discussion takes us. Before I introduce our special guest, I'd like to let this week's co-hosts introduce themselves and maybe tell us a little bit about themselves. Hello, my name is Abigail Anderson. I am currently a high school student at THMVS. I am in grade 11. I enjoy many things, including spending time with my family. I am the oldest of four, and I would like to think I am a great role model for my seven-year-old sister and my four-year-old brother and sister, who are twins. (laughs) Um, I also really enjoy spending time with my grandparents. I have gotten very close with them these past few years and I'm very thankful for that. Um, Lastly, all of my parents play a huge role in my life and I would not be where I am today if it wasn't for them. Hi, I'm Brady Power. Um, I'm from Iroquois Falls, Ontario. I've been an educator since 2006. Uh, I studied for both of my degrees at Lakehead University in Thunder Bay. and am an avid reader and writer, uh, musician, and just uh, a lover of good literature. So I'm really excited to have a chance to speak with Jesse because in my opinion, this is good literature. It's a great story and, and great form of storytelling. So uh, welcome to Jesse and thank you to Aaron for having both Abby and myself. Well, thank you guys for joining me today. I'm excited to hear your questions and learn from you, um, as well as from Jesse. Today, we are honored to have Jesse Thistle joining us. He is Métis Cree from Prince Albert, Saskatchewan. He is Assistant Professor of Métis Studies at York University. He won a Governor General's Academic Medal in 2016 and is a Pierre Elliott Trudeau Scholar and a Vanier Scholar, and his award-winning memoir, From the Ashes, is a national bestseller and a CBC Canada Reads finalist. But most importantly to my heart, and at the core of what we hope to explore more with him today, Jesse is an inspiration on the power of resilience. While his memoir explores many of the systemic issues and impacts of prejudice and racism that he faced throughout his life, his story is one of hope. So welcome, Jesse. Hi, thank you for having me. It's really an honor to have you joining us. Uh, and. Where I want to start, it's it's interesting because we're often told that we need to let our elders speak first and our knowledge holders speak first. But recently, um, I, I was given a teaching so that we need to let our youth lead. Uh, they're the ones that have the questions and they're the ones that are going to be leading future generations. So to honor that, what I'd like to do is let Abby have the floor and let her start with asking you some questions. 
All right. So for one of my first questions, um, you describe yourself as an accidental author. Can you explain what this means? I, I call myself an accidental author because uh, the way that the book was published uh, was kind of, uh, I put the donkey before the cart kind of thing. Uh, I, like uh, um, Aaron was saying, uh, won all these major academic awards from my school, uh, my undergrad doing my university degree. And the way I won them, no one had done that at York University before. And so they came to do a story, the Toronto Star, on my academic success. And in that interview with the reporter, I let it slip that I had this other life, you know, before, you know, uh, that I come from the streets and my rise into academia really started when I robbed the 7-Eleven in Brampton in an effort to save my foot. And he was kind of floored. He's like, we're going to put that. That's the story we got to show because it shows how far you've actually come. So they released the story. I got an email from a woman at Simon & Schuster who who had read the story. And uh, her name was Adrian. She asked me to come down and uh, discuss potentially writing a book. And so I went and I was, you know, uh, I guess they were, they were sussing me out, seeing, you know, what was there. And she asked um, if I had anything written about my life. And I did. I had been doing my AA steps since rehab, collecting them and writing just down my addiction so that I could understand myself and what had happened. And so I could make amends with people, go back and say sorry for all the things that I had done. And uh, I sent that to her and they called me back like almost immediately and offered me a major book contract. And so I wasn't looking to publish a book. Uh, This is really just my program uh, of me trying to understand myself. And in this way, I, I say I'm an accidental author because it fell in my lap. Most other authors, they write a manuscript, they, they work at it for years, they shop it around, it goes to auction, and then it's finally published where it just didn't happen like that for me. And I'm sure other authors probably hate me for that, <laughs> <laughs> but it, I can't help the way that things happen. So in this way, I'm an accidental author, you know. Wow, that's very interesting. And I that's amazing, actually. Um for my second question for you, um, are you still close with all of your brothers? Because I feel like they played a very um, huge role in your life, like just from the beginning. Yeah, uh, we, we made the pact, me and my brothers, to take care of each other no matter what, right? And so uh, me and my brother jo- Josh are really close still. Uh, I call him and he uses the book with his therapist, actually. Uh, to heal from his own trauma. There was things that I talked about in there that he just couldn't, uh, which it's good. You know, he's moving forward in a good way. Uh, My other brother, Jerry, and me, are we have a difficult relationship, sibling rivalry. Uh, I like to say, you know, in jest, that we're like Oasis, the the Gallagher brothers. We just fight, fight with each other. And we're in one of those periods, right, where we're just not talking. and But we'll get back together, I'm sure of that. And my, my little brother, Daniel, he's 35, I'm 45. And uh, he calls me all the time and always wants to talk to me. And uh, he always wants me to buy him Air Jordan shoes. And 
I do. I do because he thinks I'm rich, right? He's like, oh, my rich, famous brother. And so I don't want the illusion to go away. I want to, so I buy him the shoes, even though I'm not rich. You don't get rich in Canada selling books. So. Um, you never blame anyone in your story, even though you went through so much. How did you manage that? And how did you always stay so hopeful? Um. The root of addiction is uh, it's ego-based, right? And it's, uh, it's based in resentment. Uh, so you feel uh, resentful towards the world, uh, towards what has happened to you. And instead of lashing out, a lot of people inwardly implode with addiction, right? And so you're trying to heal or self-medicate usually. And so I always... Uh, had that and I worked through those issues of resentment when I was in treatment uh, since 2008 and part of that was doing my amends and going back and saying sorry and getting uh, you know also people owed me apologies right for th things that had happened and why it's central to the way the tone of the book I don't write in a very uh, resentful or vindictive or accusatory way is because that was the root of my addiction and if I'm sick you know, and I didn't do my program, maybe the book would have come out differently. But because I'd healed and there was like space from my active addiction to when the book was actually written, it just came out in a different tone, right? I wasn't trying to hurt people. I was trying to explain what had happened. And so that's why the, the book is written in, in that way. And what was the second part of your question? Um, how did you always stay so hopeful? Oh, um, I... I was lucky, I think, throughout my life where I had always encountered good people. And I wasn't so far gone as to not recognize that they were offering me little gems of wisdom and hope all along the way. So they, in these dark, dark spaces, were like guiding lights and stars, you know, like Abdi in the shelter, taking care of me and watching over my boots so people wouldn't steal them. That was showing me the value of friendship. You know, despite it all, despite having nothing, that was the most valuable thing. Uh, I, I, I learned, like, to be a good person and uh, that I was stealing from good people when the, the Chinese woman gave me the pork, you know. And so that taught me that, like, people are good and we're just trying to make it in the world and I shouldn't do that. It, it took me many years to discover that. And in jail, I even learned from people to share selflessly and not expect anything. And that's what like brotherhood and fellowship is about, you know? And so I learned to be a good human in jail. And so these people, I kind of look at them like, um, like night sky, like the North star and the night sky against the backdrop of like all the trauma and the bad stuff that was happening. And they, they, I followed those stars out, you know, out of, out of homelessness. And so that's what gave me hope were the people that I met along the way. Just in reading the story, there are obviously a number of strong women who are featured, um, you know, from from very early childhood to, to where you're you're sitting now. Uh, would you be able to speak to the importance of having positive, powerful female role models um, in your life for achieving success? Sure. Yeah, that's uh, actually one of the dominant themes of my life or strong women. My cookum, uh, Nancy. Uh, was teaching me how to be a good relative within our worldview as Michif Cree people, uh, you know, picking the berries and not taking more than we need, 
respecting nature, seeing ourselves as a relative to all the animals and plants. That's a teaching that um, I carry with me to this day. Uh, then beyond that, when I got to Brampton after I was adopted out, um, my grandmother Jackie tried her best to show me what love and trust was, you know, and uh, she was broken in many ways, but she tried her best. And like that love, you know, was uh, something that carried me through from my traumatic childhood through to adulthood. Uh, again, when I'm, when I'm on the streets, I, I, I encountered uh, kind strangers, you know, uh, the Chinese woman that I was talking about was one. She's a powerful woman, business owner, I'm sure, uh, that ran that uh, supermarket on Spadina. And uh, so she was there. There's also Lucy. We can't forget Lucy, my wife, right? She was like my bridge into society, you know, paving the way for me out of rehab when I was ready. While I was in rehab, there was Jennifer Lennox Tarian, who was reteaching me basic like hygiene and etiquette and uh, through the University of Ottawa. And it was her knowledge that like I used to take care of myself now. You know, there was Nicole Plashy. She ran uh, the rehab. She gave me my job in the kitchen. She helped me uh, reconnect with my mother. You know, my mother was my pathway back. So the whole book actually is a testament to the strength of women in my life. You know, they were the ones that were there that helped me as broken as I was through my trauma and into a healthy living. And then at the end of the book, I don't want to ruin too much. It's my aunt, uh, Yvonne, who reconnects me with my family history. Uh, my doctoral supervisor, Dr. Carolyn Padruchny, another powerful woman, reconnects me and flies me back to see my people. And so the whole thread of powerful women is throughout. And I, I try to honor honor their work that they've done with me because it's their hands that have held me up into who I am today. Great. Thank you. So I, I'm shifting gears and coming at it from kind of educational and, and board lens. Um, you talk about coming back into the circle. And I just think that's such a powerful statement. And as a board, we're really trying to encourage the use of the circle of courage as a framework for our teaching. And the one of the parts of the circle of courage focuses on that sense of belonging. Um, so I'm wondering if you could share with us what that means to you. What does belonging mean to you? And do you have advice for, for teachers on how they could cultivate a sense of belonging for students in their classrooms? I would say belonging for me is knowing your responsibilities and fulfilling them within the circle. Uh, of your re relatives, so the people that are in your everyday life around you. Uh, do you do things with kindness? Do you give back? You know, do, uh, when people give you, do you give back? Do you honor your word? Uh, and beyond that, I also believe that like homelessness, addiction, and uh, is being pushed outside of the circle of what's called all my relations. So this is how we conceptualize ourselves as relatives with everyone. Uh, and within that, we have a web of responsibilities and uh, roles that we live. And so belonging is to know where you sit in there. What's your situation? How do you understand yourself? Um, also, you have to understand your relationship, not only with the people around you, but with yourself. What's your understanding of your own personal history? Who are you? How are you situated in the land which you are in? What are your responsibilities to the land and yourself? And then beyond that, to creator. 
what's your responsibilities to creator or God or whatever you believe in. And so belonging is being situated for me within that circle, within that, that framework. And you can do that within the classroom, right? We know ourselves, we grow into our roles there. That's part of what education is, right? Is to find our, our ground and where, who are we as community members? And I know we live in like a liberal age where we're encouraged to think of ourselves more, but like I believe the opposite is healthier. We have to see ourselves as part of a collective that we're contributing together. And, and the classroom is a perfect place to do that. Um, do you have a message for our youth who may be listening, especially those who may be feeling disconnected from their culture? Yeah, I'd say uh, you're loved, you know. We love you, you know, as your uh, people that are trying to help you uh, find your legs or purchase in the world. Um, have courage. It's scary, right? It's scary to go back and try to figure yourself out. Really, it is. And I mean real courage. Like when I went back to Saskatchewan to meet my mom after years of being apart, I was terrified. I didn't know whether she was going to accept me or her family, I could be rejected. And that's the, like for a lot of people that are indigenous that have been adopted out or are culturally dislocated, that fear is pal palatable, it's real. Uh, because there are real things at stake, you know, your identity, your sense of belonging, your understanding of yourself, everything's formed by your culture, right? And so when you're going back, know that. And also be gentle, be gentle with yourself. Because some, some things you're not going to get right. Like when I went back and I started reconnecting with my Métis heritage, I started, I turned into super Métis, I call. So I started wearing like sashes and everything, furs and walking around like a, a paddle, like I'm like a voyageur or something. And Métis people, my mom in particular, she said, whoa, Jesse, that's how I know you're not Métis. Because we don't dress like it's the 17th century, you know. Uh, being Métis is about like being in that circle, that web of relationships and how we give back to our community. And that's how we know ourselves. And so you're going to make mistakes and that's okay. You know, it's a messy process full of fear. But in the end, it's rewarding. It's rewarding to know who you are and where you stand. I actually used to work at Shepherds of Good Hope um, in Ottawa. What year did you work there? Can I ask? Yeah, sure. Um, I was working there in 2005 and 2006. I would have came just the next year, 2007 yeah. and eight. That's when I, that, I was That's there. why I, I just found it. You know, you just, you, uh, you, you kind of have these paths in your life and you, you sort of, uh, you travel them at, at certain points and you can just miss somebody around the corner. So I just thought that was profound for me personally. As you can attest, obviously, um, from being in, a, in and out of uh, and, and using those facilities, uh, some things are really good about those, uh, those areas and, and those uh, services, but there, are, there is some work to do. Um, I was just wondering what you think um, could be done to kind of get a clear picture of what, and I know there's not a blanket answer for this, but um, what, what do you think would be beneficial for homeless people that are seeking that help? Uh, great question. I think uh, a lot of the faith-based faith uh, organizations, they're the ones who are out there doing the, the work, right? That's the hard, hard work. 
but paradoxically a lot of indigenous homeless people are traumatized by you know faith-based organizations and so i would say you know don't lose the mandate you know it's 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 rooted in in christian charity right biblical christian charity but don't make it overt you know like uh, the mission in ottawa used to make us guys in salvation army uh we'd have to go to chapel on sundays and stuff like that that shouldn't be a part of it right uh, we would rather go drinking and that's what happened and you'd lose the the healthy balance of just being there um Shepherds of Good Hope, uh, King Edward and Murray is a rough place. It's the it's the end of the road basically in Ottawa, one of the roughest places in all of Canada for homelessness. Actually, uh, I think Vancouver is the other place that I would say is just as you know. Uh, so, street patrol, I think it would be good. Uh, you know, around those areas. Uh, run by people that are from the community not like i'm I'm not talking like police or anything like that like uh, in um, uh, winnipeg they have the bear patrol and they do that because there's a lot of missing and murdered indigenous women through uh, winnipeg and so uh, ottawa has that too there's a lot of high inuit population and we need to protect our women and so i think that would be good around king edward and murray and through the byword market beyond that and I'm not knocking them. They have a lot of good things going on at the Shepherds too. Shepherds is one of the only places in Canada that has multiple points of intervention for people that are dealing with substance use. And it's really, really revolutionary. They have detox at the bottom, then they have the dry center, then they have the managed alcohol program, managed opioid program, housing reintegration. They have the general shelter. They have the women's side. And so keep doing more of that because we need more of that, you know. Uh, I think the safe injection sites, too, are are really, really needed. And these actually save lives and, and uh, lower transmission rates of infectious diseases through intravenous drug use. Uh, they had that at, at, in Ottawa, and I think they were going to cut that program. I'm not sure. I haven't been back there in a long time. But yeah, that's what I would say. And beyond that, I would say for Indigenous people that we need in uh, places like Ottawa, like Indigenous shelters that focus around our worldviews and try to restore a lot of those broken relationships to culture and spirituality. A place in Toronto does this really well. It's called Name Res, or Native Men's Residence, where in that program, they teach men their language. They teach them their roles and responsibilities as fathers. They get them to do basket weaving for their partner so that they can carry their babies on their back. That was a traditional male role that was taken by colonialism. You know, and so these type of programs and things need to be run by Indigenous peoples on the ground. Uh, I wouldn't say it's a separate shelter system, but one that works in union with the faith-based ones like Shepherds of Good Hope. Before we started talking with you today, we were just talking, Abby and Aaron and I, about uh, coming from small communities. And I think the book really resonates with people from smaller, isolated communities as well, because... It's very, very difficult at times if you're not involved in sports or extracurricular activities to stay on the straight and narrow. And um, we, we kind of uh, cited your, uh, your first job uh, working at the grocery store as something that was really positive. You know, you, 
you had your grandmother had uh, purchased some some fancy duds for you and yeah. you're cleaned up and you're getting a lot of attention from girls and in photography class you were like the the uh you yeah. know the, the model for for every project yeah, that and uh, impressive. yeah so and and i think a lot of the girls in class were saying this guy's a stud we haven't seen him yet but uh the bottom line is those types of things are so positive and they're just little things right like just having a, a part-time job or getting that attention from uh, you know, adults outside of your house. I just find it really, you know, a, a really accessible novel because it doesn't matter what walk of life you're from. There, there are people that are struggling with a lot of the same things that you talk about, and I think it's a, a, a quite quite a um, a good example of a beacon for people to come in and see that there is hope. Part of the conversation we were having is the idea that we're ten months into this pandemic. Um, and so, so after school sports aren't happening for our students, a lot of those organized activities that they rely on, um, and not just students, staff too, um, and mm-hmm. the ability to engage with our youth outside of the classroom, um, uh, those opportunities are gone. And so I guess my question for you is, do you have advice for, for students and staff um, when it comes to taking care of their mental health? Do you have tips? Do you have suggestions on what we can do because we know that that everybody's still struggling right now uh yeah i would say nature is the best medicine and uh, it's the highest elder the land is the highest elder and so if you're stressed or anxious go sit in your backyard or outside and look at the sky right and you can see the immensity of it because uh anxiety is like uh, it's inward energy right you need to imagine yourself as part of a larger whole so that's one thing that you do if you have a pet go play fetch with your dog you know go play with a ball of yarn with your cat i like teasing my cat poppy and she gets me out of it she'll scratch me up and stuff but it gets me into the now right that's what's important right hug your loved ones if you can the people that you love with, that you're, you know, in your house or close with that you see on a regular basis. But not everybody, of course, right? Like we can't be passing around this COVID thing, right? <laughs> but like people and let them know that, right? Let them know that uh, close to home. And then beyond that, it, this is a great time of, of uh, where you can immerse yourself in, in, in work. You know, you can get things done around the house. <clears throat> Lucy has all kinds of honeydew lists that I'm supposed to be doing, right? And that's gotten me through, actually. You know, go rake the leaves. And if she sees them starting to, like, ruminate and, like, ponder things too much, she'll find me something to do. And I'll have to go out and, you know, fix this or, you know, paint that or whatever. And so that's positive things. Or I just sat down and I, I focused on my writing and try to express myself. I think it was Carrie Fisher from Star Wars that says, take your heart and uh, your broken heart and make some art. And so we all have a little bit of a broken heart right now. So it's a great time of making art. You know, you can flip it and, and turn that into something expressive. And that's a healthy thing, right? Because once you express yourself like that, then others can relate and you create a fellowship. You know, others can, we can grieve together this time of loss and, and anxiety. I'm just excited that my husband now has to listen to you say that the honeydew list is a good thing. (laughs) Thank you for that. (laughs) That was part one of our conversation with Jesse. 
Join us next week when we talk about how the pandemic is still part of all our relations and we explore the impact his novel From the Ashes has on our youth. Until then, fists down, but words up. Truth be key to